everyone. My name is Jim Hankey, and I'm the host of Vinyl Emergency, a podcast where musicians, producers, comedians, and those who dream up, press, release, or collect vinyl records discuss their relationship with the medium today as well as in their formative youth. Artwork that has stood the test of time, neighborhood record stores we remember, the first albums we ever bought, vinyl's warmth and sound, the tangible object of a vinyl record can bring forth so many intangible memories, and that's what we try to capture on the show. Guests have included Roseanne Cash, Ben Montench of Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, Brian Stack from Conan and The Late Show with Stephen Colbert, Ted Leo, Lily Hyatt, and Dave Porter of Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul. We've been known to do an episode or two in front of a live audience as well, and we also talk to everyday record collectors about what drives their passion. We even have episodes dedicated to the processes of mastering for vinyl, properly cleaning your records, the feeling of standing in line for hours on record store day, and much more. Tune into Vinyl Emergency however you get your podcasts. Visit us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Vinyl Emergency, or stop by our website, VinylEmergency.com. This week on Dig Me Out. With your hosts, Jason Zia and Tim Minichi. Jay, this week we have a review, which is not uncommon for our show. <laughs> Wait, a, a what? A, a review. Rubo? Well, we haven't done oh. one in a couple weeks. But yeah, we're doing one, and it's a poll, Jay, that did not end in a tie. Oh, glory. Yes. Hallelujah. Our first, How's that possible? We didn't have to flip a coin. We didn't have to do anything involving a tiebreaker. Some no no weirdness. We just had a poll and we had a winner. So that's a positive. I like where this is going. These were our four picks that we put out there. We had, and I'll, I'll put these in reverse order of the winner. Coming in at number four was Brother Kane's third and final album, Wishpool. That came in with 5% of the vote. With 18% of the vote in third place, Jerry Cantrell's debut solo album, Boggy Depot. In second place, pretty close, but not, you know, no cigar. Fastball's All the Pain Money Can Buy. Now, I really thought that was going to win, and I'll get to why. And then the winner of this poll, Jay, with 45% of the vote, with a majority but not a plurality, Scott Weiland's 12-Bar Blues, his deb- debut solo album. Well, we've talked about this one quite a bit, haven't we? It's coming up at least a couple times that we should be uh, reviewing it. Yes. When we did the talk show episode, it came up, I know for sure. Yes, and this is a perfect, uh, you know, A-B episode to that one because these both are connected by the hiatus that Stone Temple Pilots went on in 1997 or yeah I guess it'll be 97 and uh, the other three members they went on to form talk show with a different singer and we reviewed that last year and then now we're getting around to the other side of that split with Scott Weiland's solo record now the reason why I was a bit surprised Jay is that when I looked through the comments pretty much nobody talked about Scott Weiland's record there were the people who were interested in hearing 
an album talked about fastball. They talked about uh they talked about the the Jerry Cantrell record. Nobody brought up Brother Kane. I don't know who voted for Brother Kane. I appreciate that you put your vote in, but uh the only person that said, "Hey, this is my vote" in the comments was Darren Svedson. He said, "This was a tough call, but my vote ultimately went to Scott Weiland as I think it will be an interesting review." But that's it. So, I see. Tara, Dewey, Keith, Davey, Whitney, Stephen, they all voted for their records. So the the I guess what we have here is a silent majority, Jay. People act in weird, bizarre ways. Yeah. What can we say? So I, I do need to mention we have a maybe, new... Maybe because we talked about it so much, we we pressured people into voting. Uh, that for might it, be it. it. We have a new pledge, Jay, a new Patreon uh, patron at our uh, website, which is www.patreon.com forward slash dig me out. Keith Badge. I, I hope I'm pronounc- pronouncing the last name correctly. Uh, welcome Keith. He joined us at the one dollar level, which means he might have been one of the people. I don't actually see who votes for what. I just see the percentages. So he might have voted for the Scott Weiland record. Maybe not. There were a total of twenty two votes cast. So possible because we only got like you know like eight comments or something like that. So a lot of people who, who voted did not comment. Interesting. So, Jay, were you familiar with this record prior to us reviewing it? Yeah, I own this one on CD. Cool. I don't remember. I think I got it pretty close to when it came out. I doubt I bought it new, though. This may have been like a you know, six-month after the release, pick-it-up-use kind of deal. Right. Um, but, yeah, I owned it. I, I listened to it quite a bit at the time. I haven't listened to it in a long time, but um, I was I was pretty familiar with it. I would imagine there were probably a few used copies laying around <laughs> after the release of this record. Right. Um, just because, and and we'll get into it in our review, it's quite different than a Stone Temple Pilots record. So if you were a Stone Temple Pilots fan and you were like, ooh, you know, I'm going to pick up the new Scott Weiland record without reading anything about it in any reviews or whatnot, you might have been thrown a little bit had you... Uh, put it in and compared it to purple or core, you know, those two records. So little history was released. uh, This was released in March of 1998, actually on the 31st. It has multiple producers, including Daniel Lenoir, the uh, very famous producer. He also plays on the record along with people such as Cheryl Crow plays on the record. She plays accordion Uh, jazz pianist, Brad Meldow. The bass on some of the tracks is Martin Lenoble, who I believe you would know from Corner for Pyros. Is that uh, and uh, some other he bands? Could, he was in Jane's Addiction, and I think he was in the Cult for a bit too. Yeah, also played with. He's played with. A, I mean, I guess he played with a lot of people. Dave Gahan yeah. from uh, Depeche Mode and Mark Lanigan, and and then also uh, contributing guitar and and. Bass is uh, Peter DiStefano, who played in Corner for Pyros. And then, you know, there's, there's a lot of people. Daniel Lenoir plays some synthesizers. But primarily, it's Scott Weiland. He does vocals, guitars, keyboards, piano, bass, 
synth bass drum loops and beatbox is what he is credited with on this record which is interesting because beatbox yeah um you know he doesn't play guitar on instructable pilots he just sings so interesting that he was you know contributing all of this stuff to this record um it came out like i said in march march 31st of 1998 on atlantic and the I don't know if you remember this, Jay, but the cover of the album is actually an homage to John Coltrane's Blue Train. Has a very like nineteen fifties like jazz look to it. Yeah, yeah, obviously, yeah. This is an obvious uh, takeoff on those album, the Blue Jazz um, album covers of that era. Yep. So this charted okay. It reached number forty-two in the U.S. And um, two top 40 singles, Lady Your Roof Brings Me Down and Barbarella, both made top 40 in the U.S. alternative chart. So that's sort of the backstory on this record. Let's actually talk about the record, Jay. Tell me, in revisiting this, one thing that you liked about it. Well, I like the the experimentation um, to some degree in this record. I like the some great music performances on here as well particularly some piano and and string stuff um Mm -hmm. i like i like him getting a little bit more um i guess traditional in a way but still being experimental so the stuff that gets i don't want to say jazzy but it just gets to like a um acoustic kind of stripped down approach but the production is it's like a 60s or 70s style production where you know you got extreme it's a live room sound but you've got a lot of panning going on and um and then he does enough uh experimentation over top of that to keep it you know uh, contemporary and interesting and there are some times where he i think he pushes his vocal in different directions that you wouldn't have heard in sdp so yeah i mean overall i like the creativity here i mean it sounds like a it sounds a lot of it sounds fairly inspired which I think, you know, STP at this time was starting to hit, you know, right before the hiatus a little bit of probably being predictable. So this makes some sense uh, in terms of being inspired. Um, And in in terms of the talk show record, I think he's clearly trying different things. And and that record is, is really isn't, I mean, in many ways it's, it's what those, the Delio brothers, brothers do um, with a new singer. And this is definitely, um, you know, somebody trying to spread their wings and take chances. Well, and I think uh, the, the one thing that I like about this record in piggybacking on what you just said, it really shows what an artistic individual Scott Weiland is. And it shows like why the third record, Tiny Music, moves in such a different direction than the first two records, especially the the first record, which kind of gets fairly or unfairly compared to Pearl Jam and and the heavier Seattle stuff, you can see that Scott Weiland wants to push this the sounds in different directions, and he gets to do that somewhat on Tiny Music. I assumed that it was the DeLeo brothers who were doing that. Yeah, yeah. But now I'm starting to realize that Scott Weiland had a lot more going on musically than maybe any of us really 
considered. Yep. I had the same same thought as I was listening to this record was I, I th- wondering if I gave them too much did the Leo brothers too much credit for being the sort of um, I don't know experimental or creative the only creative force in the band. Now I mean I will say from a guitar standpoint and and that end of it like Robert DeLeo is and Dean DeLeo bass and guitar wise come up with some really good riffs I'm not discounting that but the melodies that Scott Weiland wrote on top of all that and was able to slowly twist from being you know a grunge influenced band into kind of forging their own path by the third record clearly indicates that Scott Weiland was doing something pretty original and then this record is like you said, it's pretty much his attempt to move away from that sound. There's nothing, even the song Mockingbird Girl, which had previously been released on the Tank Girl soundtrack. He takes that and and kind of deconstructs what he did before. He slows it down. He turns it into a more of a mid-tempo song than, it, than the up-tempo song that was on that soundtrack. She, she flies without no feathers A fool to try and catch her nothing on here that from a musical standpoint that you could connect to what STP sounded like. And they get back together the year after this and they make the number four record. And again, it's right back into guitar riffage and a much more radio friendly sound. I thought where's the man could be an STP song and in the, in the middle section, I guess the bridge of Barbarella where it, that's there's that slide guitar bit yeah. that comes out of nowhere that sounded like STP unplugged, but those are probably the only two sp- that, that I could hear being at least for that band. Now the yeah. production is different than they would have handled it. Oh but yeah. Wise, I think it's the, in the ballpark. And that's what makes this such an interesting listen is that you're used to hearing Scott Weiland with these pristine, you know, guitar tones, uh, that, uh, would get dialed up for rock radio. And then here he's like got, you know, what sound like on some of these songs, like direct guitar into a board, getting that like super fuzzed direct, no reverb, just, you know, buzzsaw guitar sounds on some of these songs. And it's such a radical change from what you're used to hearing with his vocal that it's really interesting and it provides like a really nice counterbalance because his vocal then becomes the thing that's much cleaner and more uh, restrained. And it's the music around him that's going more chaotic. And that never really happened in Stone Temple Pilots. Everything was very, you know, it was pretty controlled in terms of 
the songs yeah. being radio friendly and the songs being concise in three minutes and he stretches a lot on a lot of these songs the you know four five six minutes it provides an interesting palette with for him to play with i agree i think there are moments though particularly a lot of the bridges where uh the music gets ugly and he's got like distortion on his voice or he does scream there's a, there's a couple songs where that happens yeah. and uh that doesn't work as well for me um the bridges in particular, I think a lot of these songs, the bridges can be cut completely. They don't they don't really do anything worth listening to repeatedly. Um, and sometimes I think they're taking away from what would otherwise be a, a pretty good, concise pop song with a you know, pretty interesting production approach. So I think that's where it's almost like he fell in he's like following the songwriting patterns that STP would write, you know, uh, mm. do, but he doesn't have sort of that cohesive band. So when they get to those spots where you know, the whole point of some of those bridges is like, okay, this is a moment for the band to kind of come together and show how they play off of each other. And you can tell there's not a band here. So it ends up being either a completely part out of left field or mm-hmm. just something noisy or some studio experiment or usually fairly forgettable. Yeah. Unfortunately, the the thing that getting into some of the stuff that I don't like, the thing that bothered me is that I heard clear influences on some of these songs, whether it's like a song like about nothing or uh, what was it? Jimmy was a stimulator and opposite octave reaction. A lot of these songs I heard like nineties U two in the yeah. in like the Zuropa <laughs> yeah, era. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a song on that al- album. Um, daddy's gonna pay for your crashed car that has like three of the songs on here reminded me of that track Mm. obvious like bowie um nods in like barbarella that kind of has a bowie and then there were you know when you look at a song like lady your roof brings me down white album beatles yeah there's well in the doors the verses of that are very doorsy and there's there's a couple other spots also where it just i feel like he had a hard time like he he wanted to expand the sound. He wanted to get into stuff that people were, you know, not familiar with him messing around with and with, you know, the sound that they associate with him with um, Stone Temple Pilots. But then he's, you know, he's clearly got a grasp of 
rock music that I didn't realize he did. I mean, you know, any kid growing up, he, he was from the Midwest and moved out to California, has a is going to have an appreciation, you know, for bands like the Beatles and Bowie and the Doors and Stones and all that kind of stuff. But I feel like he doesn't transcend his influences the way I wish he kind of would. And there are a couple songs where he does, where he comes up with some interesting, unique, personal touches. But I don't know. Did you were you hearing things like that also? I heard them. Um, I, 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 I tended to be more forgiving of that. Um, I, I think he nailed, there's times where he nails like Beatles choruses that I just, I think work great, even though I know that's what they are. Um, they just sound great. And he, he, he either through the harmony or the melody hits it, you know, I think about nothing is an example of that. Once you get to that chorus, it's like, Oh wow, this is, you know, total Beatles. And it's out of nowhere, too. It doesn't really fit much of the rest of the song, and it sort of switches in that chorus. You're like, whoa, when did this turn into Rubber Soul? Um, mm-hmm. Lady Your Roof Brings Me Down is another one where, you know, obviously you hear the doors and the verses, and then you hear the Beatles in the chorus. But I, I didn't, I, I, I tended to like that material better. Uh, maybe it was more familiar. Maybe I was appreciating his, you know, wearing his influences a little bit more on his sleeve, which I think the STP stuff it's a little harder to figure that out um, right. sometimes. So I didn't mind it. Okay. Yeah. I agree with you. The, in terms of like STP, you could say they're of the era, but you wouldn't listen to that and go, Oh, well this sounds like Sabbath or this sounds like, you know, whatever yep. they were influenced by. It definitely has its own thing going on. Whereas him stepping in here, there's clearly some, drawing on his his influences i thought and and i I was proven wrong by going back and listening to this i thought there was a lot more of like bowie and that like seven especially specifically the 70s bowie stuff because he talked about it a lot in interviews at the time and i went back and i i dug some up where he's you know talking about uh scary monsters being an influence on on the record and i didn't i mean there's a touch here or there but this is way more indebted to me in a lot of respects to to 90s u2 and then like electronic music of the 90s all the stuff yeah. that he's doing with loops and and uh you know if you're writing the album on your own that makes sense that you'd sit with like a drum machine and do that kind of music so but i was surprised cuz in in that way it's pretty forward thinking that he's doing a lot of stuff that would become pretty commonplace with regards to all the loops and stuff yeah i think to me there's two records here there's the record he's talking about which is barbarella uh divider sun lady your roof brings me down uh maybe even desperation number five i mean there's there's that record and then there's the loopy electronica u2 thing um and sometimes the songs blur there's a couple where they 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 start to overlap a little bit but mostly they don't so that's probably to me the biggest issue i have with the record and revisiting it and is those songs stand out is really not holding up a whole very well um mockingbird girl up opposite octave reaction they might be good songs, but the production is so 
I don't know, specific and of that time. Yeah. It's hard to appreciate if the song is good or not. Same with Jimmy was a stimulator. There's just so much fuzz or there's such heavy use of drum machines or loops and just that, that, that nineties U2 sound that, that, that stuff. And I don't, I don't remember that stuff as well. I mean, the stuff that popped out to me was, you know, lady, your roof brings me down more. Like that was the, when I revisited the records, like, okay, I remember this song. The, those other tunes that's the U2 E stuff didn't, didn't, I didn't remember them and they didn't hold up as well. Cold kiss is another one that, um, that's probably my least favorite song on the record. Yeah. You know, very harsh industrial. And it's got the, I don't know, just the throwaway lyrics of kill me, thrill me in the, in the verse. And which is a, uh, a lyric from a U2 song in the nineties. Yeah. A lot of killing me lyrics. And one, at one point he says, keep away stranger danger. <laughs> just like, eh, what? It's just a lot of throwaway lines, you know, of nineties yeah. typical pain and misery shit. Divider is the same thing. Or I'm sorry, uh, not Divider. Uh, which song is it? Oh, okay, Barbarella. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Misery, Pain, Save Me, Disease, you know, all that stuff. I mean, I like that, at least in that song, he's he's attempting to, I don't know, make an analogy just to, like an, to a narrative or a movie, a cinematic kind of approach to it. But it still taps into all those typical 90s terms and self-loathing kind of stuff that yeah doesn't hold up tremendously well while he's been an interesting songwriter as far as like coming up with interesting melodies and hooks i've never felt like he was particularly deep as far as being a songwriter like i never listened to his lyrics and got like profoundly affected yeah no yeah no and i i kind of feel like What's weird is that I I do think that this is a really interesting and in some ways important record because it's, you know, showcasing all of this stuff that he clearly wanted to get out. There's a lot here that's interesting and cool. And it really, to me, is almost like his last stand in a weird way, because I kind of feel like Stone Temple Pilots after this became pretty boring. I didn't really like the number four record and, and, or Shangri-La Dida, or then like years later they did that reunion record. And then he did the velvet revolver records, which I didn't really care for. I felt like there was a lot of promise with that lineup, but it never really delivered. And then he did another solo record, which I have no recollection of after that just felt like he just played it safe with the stone table pilot stuff and the velvet revolver stuff. That was very commercial yeah, I think we've we've hit this theme a little bit um, in the past where there are the records where artists really go out and kind of expose themselves and try new things and they're adventurous. And then when the public doesn't receive them tremendously well, there seems to be a pattern where they just go back to being like the def- like what everybody expects. And it's right. almost like the creativity dies. Um, I think this has come up with in some of our, you know, uh, in the nineties episodes was with bands where their creativity really kind of ends. Um, and I, I, I'm, I'm with you. I, I think this is the, for me, at least I, I don't know a lot of the solo material he did after this. I know the velvet revolver stuff. I know this STP stuff, but, um, this seems to be, yeah, the last stand in terms of that. He did a which Christmas is album. Did you know that? Oh, oh God. Yeah. I do know that. Like that I is did. the least of what I would ever want. 
from Scott yeah. Weiland. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, like he turned into Rod Stewart. <laughs> oh. I did like, you know, lyrically, as long as he's not doing the kill me, thrill me, save me stuff, I'm okay. I did like, uh, I found the song Sun particularly sad and that, you know, gets into that. Obviously, he has a troubled um, past and probably even has a hard time at this point uh, staying clean. And, you know, basically he's saying this kid makes his life better. And you're sitting there listening to that and like realizing what what his life became after this. It didn't get any better. Um, right. Well, I think he got busted like right after this album came out. So now having a kid, I'm just sitting there, you know, l- listening to that. And you're like, God, how can you go back to doing doing that doing you know being strung out on heroin and just being a mess when you've got kids and you're recognizing it too it's like one thing to, to never like really realize it to be sitting here writing songs where you're realizing yeah. that you know it makes your life better and it gives you something else to to focus on and just you know different experiences to then spend another decade plus slipping back into being a junkie it's just it's I found that particularly sad of all the songs on here. made me sad listening to this thinking about like if this had just maybe done a little bit better maybe he didn't re- maybe he doesn't rejoin stone Temple pilots and maybe he continues to make like interesting weird solo records and he doesn't pull back like you said yeah well that's what's so weird about these records is you know when he when the art when artists like this take chances you wish I don't know. I, I don't know the financial side of it, and I don't know the sort of the business part of it. But if you just lower your expectations a little bit, you know, as you're going into this to say, "Hey, I'm going to do this. I think it's creatively the right thing to do, and I'm going to set different goals." Basically, it's okay if this isn't bigger than a Stone Temple Pilots record, right? As long as you know, at this point, my goal is to just continue making music that I want to make the rest of my career like i'm gonna bring it down that might mean like i have to change my lifestyle and you know what i mean like go through that whole exercise of like this is a new beginning and it seems like if some artists were able to do that and that's not an easy thing to do it probably takes people pointing that out and helping them to get there but 
then yeah, then maybe you can kind of redirect. And, and there's many that have done that, you know, but you can, you can have a different career just because you have different expectations. But if you go into it, like I'm going to show them and this is going to be better than anything. And then it's not, uh, then you got to on either side, right? I think they both probably had some of that notion in their head and neither of them did particularly well. So yeah, then they're back together and they're sort of just checking the box at that point. Like, all right, I guess we got to get back together and do this thing. You know? I mean, based on all the people he had involved in this record, I got to imagine he thought this was going to be big because you don't, you just can't like enlist, you know, half of Jane's addiction and or Porter for pyros and get, you know, Daniel Lenoir to show up and you know these aren't like this is this is a budget for Atlantic and maybe what needed to happen was he needed to put this out on an indie label maybe he needed to like yeah get reeled in and they needed to say look you can make whatever you want but your budget isn't a million dollars your budget is fifteen thousand dollars do whatever you want as far as or twenty thousand whatever but yep. Yeah, different. It was a different time too. I don't think the label would have ever yeah. approached it that way. Unfortunately, they were in maximum. Uh, they were trying to push everything, throwing everything at the wall, and expecting all their artists that sold to continue that success. And right, they given up on artist development. And it almost, you know, if it, it had been now, you'd been better off. You know, you could have taken some of the pressure down and yeah, done right. it independently or even done like a series of EPs or, you know, and they also like obviously had trouble with touring. I think that's probably, and that's what I've heard in the past in terms of stories from him or others of like the drugs become an issue when you're out touring. So I suppose, um, that was probably, that would have likely been another struggle for him to make this successful or other solo material successful is being able to keep it together when you're on the road. Yeah. And being able to be on the road for extended periods of time, you know, I think a lot of artists now that are independent and are doing probably what he was maybe trying to do are playing constantly. They're constantly traveling, constantly touring. It just never stops. They'd never take a break because that's the way the music industry is now. Right. For better or worse. Yep. Depending on your age. All right. Let's talk about our overall ratings on this record jay were the album better ep or decent single where do you land oh i'm gonna say a worthy album although i probably would want to break it into two eps i would love to do a mix where i split the the records i described that i hear split the two and a half do six and six and see how those feel um the more electronic u2 stuff on one record and the more i think you know melancholy beatles doors classic kind of sound on another record but i think there's enough here you know to make it relevant particularly for who he is and everybody knows the material before this so i think it's a worthy listen uh as a record i i think that's a that's the right approach doing it is a worthy record there's a lot of interesting cool stuff on just about every song, but it's so uneven when you put it all together. It's just jumping around from style to style that I think if you split it into two six-song EPs, it would probably work better 
in that format. So two uh, lukewarm worthy albums, <laughs> I guess you'd say, from us. So, and I think uh, overall, I don't know if I hit it in the things I liked, but there's uh, it, it's there's some really great vocal performances on here too. Yeah. So I think you, if nothing else, it helps you appreciate his creative input and STP, um, and then also his vocal ability. Mm-hmm. I, I think there's some tunes on here where, because the band's not there, it's really just about him. You can appreciate, um, what what he could do as a singer. Yeah. Absolutely. So if you like what you heard on this episode, please consider leaving us some positive feedback over at iTunes and you can join us at Patreon for just a buck a month. You can join us at www.patreon.com forward slash dig me out, become a patron, vote on our polls, get bonus content from episodes and shortly we'll be announcing our first quarter giveaway. Don't know what it is yet, but I'll figure it out and then I'll announce it. But it's going to be coming up at the end of the month. So for Jay, I'm Tim. We're out and we'll be back next week with another episode of Dig Me Out. Thanks for listening. To support the podcast, visit www.patreon.com forward slash dig me out and become a monthly subscriber at www.digmeoutpodcast.com where you can find links to our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram pages, as well as our merchandise store at zazzle.com. Hey.